Hi, everybody, and good morning. Welcome. My name is Morgan. I'm a lead pastor here at Mosaic. And uh, before we get going in our time in God's Word, we want to give you a quick update on what you can expect. If you've been here, you know we've got something coming this fall, starting in two weeks, called our For the Love campaign. We're doing this, of course, in connection with our series in the book of John, as you can see. And to give you an update on that, what that's going to look like, to my left, your right, is the legend, our community groups pastor here, uh, Brett Milliken. Would you guys just give it up for Brad real quick? Here we go. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Listen, for this For the Love campaign, we're asking everybody who is not already connected to one of our community groups to get connected to one of our groups. Because starting the second week of September, we're going to be asking our community groups to meet for five consecutive weeks to help you build and establish relationships and friendships and community within this church family. At the end of those five weeks, we're asking each group to perform, execute, plan some kind of service project that's designed to demonstrate the love of God either to a neighbor or maybe even to an entire neighborhood. Right now, our vision here at Mosaic, like what's this whole community group thing about? Well, our heart is to make disciples of Jesus in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational context. Well, what is discipleship? Well, Scripture says discipleship is being conformed to the image of Christ because he is the perfect image bearer of God. And we cannot collectively reflect the image of a triune God as isolated individuals. We must be in gospel-centered community with people who are not like ourselves in order to reflect the Father, Son, Holy Spirit-ness of who God is. So we want to help you get connected not just into a midweek service, but into a community of people who are living life as a reflection of who God is and his love for the city of Austin. Now, to help you do that, we've established a number of groups across the city. We're actually, I'm excited, we're launching six new groups coming up over the next few weeks. You can see those right there, the Huckabees, the Smiths, the Arnebergs, Reese's, Charlotte McGilligan, and the Buchanans. Now, if you'll show those on the map, let me show you where they're located. You can see they range from all the way up in Leander, down to near the airport, downtown Austin. So lots lots of new groups popping up in those areas. But now let's show you where the rest of our groups are located. And you can see we have a number of groups covering pretty much from Liberty Hill all the way down to Slaughter Lane, all over the city of Austin. So the chances are pretty good that there's a group getting together somewhere near you. Now, here's how that matters. If we're going to pursue community and relationship and, and what I like to say, gospel one another, proximity plays a big part of that. Right? So here's my challenge to you over the next couple of weeks. If you're not already in the community group, I want you to, to push the excuses aside, make space in your calendar, press through the hesitation, and get connected to one of these groups. Because this, this is not just a church program. This is what God has called us to be and do in the city of Austin as we seek to live on mission and make his love known to this great city of ours. Now, to get connected with a group, you can go to our website and click on our community group directory. You can check, uh, press the community group banner on the app or make it real simple for you. I'm going to be in a, a table at the lobby on your way out. Feel free to swing by, ask any questions you have. I will explain more about what we're doing out there and you can fill out one of our blue cards and I'll follow up with you this week to help you get connected. Sound good? Yeah. All right, so it's three things. Meet new people, Make new friends and serve someone in need. Think we can do that as a church? Yes, we can. I think we can. So I will see you guys in the lobby. Great. Thank you, Pastor Brett. Very, very good. All right, let's get into our time in God's Word. Would you mind actually standing with me today as we... um, 
As we read God's word, I'll be your scripture reader for today. We are in the gospel of John. It comes from John 3, verses 1 through 21. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Well, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, one of the most fascinating, I think, leaders, uh, certainly peacemakers in the 20th century was someone that you've heard of named Mahatma Gandhi. You've all heard of Gandhi. But one of the things that you may not be aware of is the extent to which Gandhi based his ideas on the, the teaching, on the humanitarian ethic of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, for example, Gandhi... Gandhi did a number of things that were, were fascinating. Uh, he was an advisor to kings and queens. Uh, he had lots of celebrities who were friends, but despite that, he, he never traveled by plane. He only traveled by train, and even then he would go only in third class along with the peasants and the animals. And when people asked him, you know, why are you traveling in third class? He would reply, because there's no fourth class. No fourth class. Yeah, uh, he adopted uh, a young leprous boy as his own child. He changed the bandages personally, risking a death sentence. Uh, when he used a pencil, for example, he would, he would use it down to the nub. He said in honor of the Indian factory worker who, who made it. Uh, he taught his people that if, if India were ever to be bombed, they should look up at the sky, should be at peace, and to pray for the pilot who was bombing them. Yeah, now, what does that sound like? It sounds familiar, right? A lot, a lot like the person of Jesus in his, his teaching, but perhaps he, I think the, the, the most striking, maybe even saddest part of Gandhi's life is that he never considered becoming a Christian. 
Because as he looked out at the lives of the Christians that he interacted with, particularly in Europe in his day, what he saw was this uh, blatant and rampant racism, uh, dogmatism, self-righteousness. He was so mistreated by people, by white Christians in particular, because of his ethnicity. He was kicked off a train because he wasn't white. He was excluded regularly from restaurants and and businesses because of his his skin color. And he, he, he had to say this about why he never became a Christian. The lives of Christians did not give me anything that the lives of men of other faiths have failed to give. So it was impossible for me to regard Christianity as a perfect religion or the greatest of all religions. Now, if you're here and you're, you're skeptical of, uh, of Christianity, of, of people of the Christian background, or if you're skeptical uh, of a church uh, you know, that you've been a part of in the past, on one hand, of course, that's understandable. I think we've all been there, and yet if that's you, let me just suggest to you today that maybe, maybe, that you, like Gandhi, as brilliant as he was and as brilliant as I'm sure you are, that you may, like he did, missed the point of the Bible and of who Jesus was and what he came to do. You say, what do you mean, Morgan? I mean this. I mean this. Every system of thought has what's called, and here's a big fancy word, called its own soteriology or theory of salvation. Uh, Islam has its own soteriology, theory of salvation. It says salvation is working to obey the the five pillars and do your best. Uh, Hinduism says salvation is working to escape your past, right? Like karma. Buddhism says salvation is working to escape everything. They call it nirvana. Atheism says salvation is working to escape religion and its effects on you. The world would be better, right, atheists say, if there were no religion. A modern America says salvation is you working to become who you want to become. Leave the old person behind, right? But whatever the angle, the root's always the same. It's salvation by you working some way, somehow. And so people from all faith backgrounds, like Gandhi, uh, and this may be you today as well, if and when you read the Bible... And you read it typically in the hopes that you're going you're gonna to find some more inspiration on how to be a better person, right? On how to have a, a better life. And so you're always disappointed like people are when you come to passages uh, about uh, the people in the Old Testament in particular, like Abraham, you find out who's like a, a liar and a polygamist or Noah, who's a drunk or David, who's an adulterer, right? Uh, but let me just suggest to you that if you're offended with the people in the Bible, or by the lives of other Christians that you've met, although that's reasonable, let me just suggest to you, you're really offended by the wrong thing. There's something to be offended about for sure. And let me suggest to you, you really ought to be offended if you're going to be by the words of Jesus in this passage today. Because right here, Jesus is describing his salvation, what Christian salvation looks like, what it means to be saved, and it's something entirely different. It's different than every ever thought system. He's drawing a line in the sand with every other kind of faith system, thought system, and that's what we're going to look at today, what Christian salvation looks like. Now, before we begin, let me just give you a quick disclaimer. While, 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 while the Christian vision for salvation is way broader than just the individual. It includes things like justice, public justice. It includes things like creation care for the environment. It includes things like supernatural healing for the body. That's what salvation is right here in this passage. Jesus is primarily concerned for what salvation looks like, what it is for the individual. So if you hear this and you're thinking, man, this is pretty narrow. It sounds just like about the individual. Number one, you're right. 
Number two, that's what Jesus is talking about. Number three, hang on because just go back and listen to last week's message or stick around here at Mosaic and you'll hear about that other stuff as well. So here we go. Let's look at Christian salvation by asking three questions. I'm going to move through these pretty quickly. Number one, what is it? Number two, what does it do to us? And finally, how can we get it? Simple outline. What is it? What does Christian salvation do to us? How can we get it? Number one, let's just ask, what is it? What is Christian salvation? Pick up the passage here in verse one. Now there was who? It says a Pharisee. His name was Nicodemus, a member you got to catch this, of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. No one could be doing the miracles that you are if God weren't with him. Jesus replied, oh, very truly, some of you know the old King Jimmy. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, right? Truly, truly. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, how many of you have heard of that term? Come on, it should be everybody born again. Yeah, yeah. Now, well, you may not know this, maybe you do, but in like almost every sociological poll taken, most Americans would prefer not to have a born again Christian for a neighbor. That's what our nation has told us. Why? Well, you may know this. The, the term born again has become like a, mm, a category of like a separate class of Christian. Like a person who's had some deep cathartic experience because of some really bad brokenness. Like they were so just, you know, on their way to, you know, total collapse in life. They had to have something happen to them. As a result, they seek out rigid rules now, maybe a faith community that's sort of intolerant because they're trying to like squeeze back in uh, their morality like you do when you, you know, you're taking one too many trips to the buffet line. You're trying to squeeze it all back in or like a, like a pair of spanks for the soul. You know, you're trying to just stuff it all in there. But the problem with that view is that this passage just won't allow us to hold it because look who Jesus is talking to. He's speaking to who? Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a person with no discernible moral flaws. Nicodemus is squeaky clean. He's not broken. He's not falling apart. He's wealthy. He's at the top. He's got it going on. He's altogether respected in his community. He's got it all together. And he's actually, as you can see, he's kind of open-minded too. Because, you know, even if he's coming to Jesus in secret, He's still coming to Jesus, right? Who's different than his Pharisee friends. So, but Jesus is saying to him, the keeper of every moral commandment, you must be born again. Which means this, the call to be born again isn't a call to more morality, to being a better person. It's actually a challenge to more morality in your life. A challenge to even being a better person because of being a good person, more morality was all that God required. Jesus never would have said this. And this is therefore right here. If there's any point in the Bible you ought to be offended, it's this. Because Jesus is saying here, no matter how good you are, no matter how good I am, it's not good enough for him. Now, if you're offended by that, if you're offended by Jesus saying, no matter how good you are, conservative, liberal, secular, religious, if if you're offended by that, Jesus is saying, no matter how good you are, it's not good enough for him. It's because 
you or I, we've put our hope in our own goodness. That's what we put our hope in. Uh, Being good, right? Whatever that means, being morally upright or being tolerant and open-minded. Let me tell you, if you want proof of that thought, just look one chapter ahead. When Jesus has, in chapter 4, a conversation with a different kind of person. You may know the story. It's the woman at the well. She's a broken woman on like her fifth marriage. She's not respected by her community like Nicodemus is. She's an outcast. She's only drawn water from the well at noon because no one else wants to come that time of day. It's too hot. You know what that means, what that's like in Texas. But Jesus reveals himself to her, chapter four, like he does to Nicodemus. But unlike Nicodemus, she embraces it. She loves it. She loves him. And she tries to bring everybody to Jesus. Why? Oh, it's because she knows she can't pull herself together. She knows her morality isn't good enough. She can't be good. She's actually relieved to hear God's salvation doesn't work on the basis of her goodness or badness. She wasn't putting her hope in her own goodness. It wasn't there anyway. And this is why the opening line, some of you know this verse, to the Sermon on the Mount is this. Blessed are the, what, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sound familiar? It ought to, yeah. Who are, the, who are the poor in spirit? Well, think about it. Who are the poor? Poor people are people who know, Jesus is telling you, that their money isn't enough. If you came to a poor person, let's just say in that day, and said, hey, man, just use your money. You know, buy a house or, you know, buy a you know, new herd of cattle. You know, fund your kids' education. They would laugh at you, right? Why? Because they know their money wasn't enough. And so Jesus is saying here, in the same way, until you laugh at the thought that your morality is good enough for him or God, he says, you can't enter my kingdom. Now, Nicodemus has got to be thinking, was it something I said, you know, (laughs) that I got this? And I think the answer is yes, it was something that Nicodemus said. Let's look at what it was. Look at what he opens his conversation with to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. We know you're a teacher. What does he call Jesus here? Come on. A teacher. He says, you're a teacher. Jesus says, teacher. Oh, so that's what you think I am. You think I'm like a, like a good teacher? He said, no, 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 no. He's about to tell him you got it all wrong. He's about to show him that Jesus did not come, hear me, as just a teacher with some words to give to you. He's about to tell him, I've come as a savior with my life to give for you. You see the difference? Not as a teacher with some words to give to you, but as a savior with his life to give for you. Look at what he says. He gives him an object lesson. He's a Nicodemus. He says, just as Moses, Old Testament story, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He said, Nicodemus, you remember that story from the Old Testament when Moses went through the midst? There's a story. Uh, the, 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 the children of Israel, the Israelites, were camped in the desert. These snakes were running rampant through their camp in the desert. The people were being bit. They were dying. God says, Moses, hold up a cross. It was two poles. Bind them together and put a bronze serpent on the pole. 
He's saying when the people look up and they see their poison on that pole, they'll know that I'm the one who can heal them. And Jesus is saying, remember that story? Oh, it was just a picture of me, Nicodemus, and what I came to do. He's telling Nicodemus, you've got the poison of pride and morality flowing through your veins and only I can save you and so today if you're if you're if you're offended by this like Nicodemus was it's because you quite possibly or I we were coming to Jesus like most of our culture does like Nicodemus came we come to him as just a teacher thinking he's just come to give us more information or more rules but Jesus is saying no you've got to come to me as your savior because you need a whole new life. So being born again, Christian salvation, isn't an old message. It's not a new message. Hear me. It's the original message of Jesus to the person who thinks he needs it the least. How about that? Jesus says, you must be born again. That's what it is, number one. Number two, let's ask though, well then, what does it do to us? How does it change us? How does it shape us? What does it cause to happen in us? Let's look at this in verse six. Jesus unpacks it a bit. Verse six, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Verse seven, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So what does the new birth do? It does two things we're going to see. First, it does something in us. And second, it does something for us. First, let's see. It does something in us. Let me try to unpack this sort of metaphor Jesus uses. Uh, As you can all see, no doubt, I was born with this beautiful, pasty, off-white kind of whatever colored skin I got, right? It just is what it is until I forget my SPF 250 uh, and then... Of course, it turns a bright shade of red. I get two colors for the price of one. You know, it's all good. I, but what would it take, for example, uh, for me to look like my friend Barnabas here, right? Lift, those, lift that up, brother. Lift it up. Lift it up. With that beautiful velvety chocolate, right? Man, skin tone. What would it take for this to become that? You say, well, hey, Morgan, you need a lot. Well, yeah, you would. Right. I would need a different, literally, DNA. Wouldn't I? I would need a different father to have put into my life a different kind of genetic material. You say, well, that's impossible. Why? Well, you say, it's because, Morgan, you've already been born with one kind of DNA, and you're right. And in the same way, therefore, the Bible says, the New Testament says front to back that you were born with a spiritual genetic material that looks a certain way, it's bent a certain way, and if you look honestly at history, if you look honestly at yourself, you can see that the bent of humanity, the bent of self is towards the self, and it's towards saving the self, either through feeling good, through rule keeping, right? I'm better than those people, I keep my religion better, my faith better, I come to church better, or it's through uh, not rule keeping but rule breaking right I'm fine on my own self-actualization self-fulfillment ultimate kind of freedom but let me tell you rule keeping and rule breaking are just the same thing they're two flowers born from the same seed so what would it take for my skin color to be changed oh it would take a miracle 
And that's exactly what the Bible is saying. Jesus is saying, insisting on that it takes for individuals to come to know God. See, Christianity is not a philosophy at its core, although it has philosophical implications. It is not a religion at its core. Christianity is. Jesus is contending for, if you'll have the ears to hear it, it is a supernatural encounter at its core. The new birth, see, it changes you. It enables you to live and look differently on the outside. Because you've been changed on the inside. First, the new birth gives you new power from a new spiritual DNA. But secondly, it also does something, not just in us, but also for us. It does something for us because let's just extend the metaphor for a moment. What are people who are born when people are born, individuals are born, human beings are born, what are we born into? Usually, we're born into what? A family, right? We're a family. And the New Testament writers pick up on this thought from Jesus over and over. Let me give you one example. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2, writes a letter. He says, listen, folk, in the church in Ephesus, you are, he says, members of God's household. Now, that's a loaded term. A household was a family you could only belong to by a blood relation. He's telling you, if you've got there for new DNA from a new father, you've got a new family, got a new family. When I was in in college uh, for a number of years, uh, Carrie and I, my wife Carrie, before we were Carrie and Morgan, we were just friends and went to this little uh, inner city church there in Houston, Texas. And uh, we were, and a couple of our friends were the only uh, white people in that church. Uh, and this church was amazing. They had a heart to redeem the, the brokenness of the inner city there in Houston. And they met, true story, in a former crack house where the only ventilation was from the bullet holes in the wall. No ceiling fans, no nothing, all that. No even like, no, like little fanning plug-in like a, you put in your house in the summer, right? Uh, anyway, <clears throat> Even though I was different, Carrie and I were outsiders. They loved us, received us, accepted us. And so one night they came over to uh, Carrie's house and our Christian ministry group was over there hanging out one night uh, with them. And so uh, they, they played a little game we learned that night called Pass the Rap. Pass the Rap. And Pass the Rap went like this. Maybe you'll play it in your community group uh, this week if, if you're lucky. And uh, what happens is everybody takes, uh, you start cl- uh, clapping, you start creating on this collaborative beat, this collective a beat, and then every person in the circle starts taking a turn doing and creating an, an improvisational poem, <laughs> otherwise known as freestyle rap. That's what it's called. And let me tell you, I was scared to death because the, 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 uh, the rap started to get passed, and the rap was getting passed, and the rap was getting passed to me, and here it's coming. They're passing it. And they're not stopping the pass, and the rap got passed to me, and I totally froze. And of course, I tried to pass it or fumble it or whatever you do with it, uh, but they wouldn't let me not go. And I think I, I literally mumbled something like this, stealing like something like a breakfast cereal commercial from the 80s. Like, my name is Morgan, and I'm here to say I love Jesus in a major way. That's, that's what, that's what, <laughs> I got So, it was terrible. But those Jesus people cheered me like I was like Lecrae or somebody, you know, and so... I never forgotten it. Of course, they were saying, yes, we see you. You're different. Your rap stinks. But you know what? We love you. And you're one of us. And you know something? I loved it. I loved it. And I would rather have, and I did, build relationships with them 
Rather than build relationships with all the other white dudes on my college baseball team who were just like me on the outside, but nothing like me on the inside. And here's why this is so important to see. Because every group, hear me, every group in our culture tries to build loyalty around something lower, a weaker identity, like politics, race, class, Gender, nationality. And let me tell you though, those things are not unimportant. They should not be dismissed because God gave you the skin color that he gave you on purpose. We should honor that. The gender that you have on purpose, we should honor that. And the Bible goes so far as to assert he caused you to be birthed in the time and place, the nation that he did for his purposes. Those things are all important. But when? The Bible says when you're born again, you get a whole new identity, something upstream of all that. And that's why Paul says later in Galatians 3, in God's household, when you're brought together, bought by the blood of Jesus, importance, right? Identity is no longer first based around class, gender, education, or race, but around the blood, DNA of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. Everyone's now loved equally. What's Christian salvation like? Number one, it's like a new birth. Second, what does it do to us? It gives us new life and a new family. Number three, finally, how can we get it? How can we receive the new birth? How can a person become a Christian? Uh, if you're a parent uh, like me, you've seen, I saw all four of my children be born. And none of them were particularly happy about it. None of them came out smiling. But for all of them, being born wasn't something that they chose in and of on their own, but it was something that happened to them. The point is that my children were not brought into the world through their own effort, through their own pain, through their own trauma. They were only brought into the world through the pain, the effort, and the trauma of another Their mother, of course not. Their father. And so it's a bit harder, right? It's a bit harder. All the women said amen, right? It's a bit harder for us to grasp, I think, this metaphor than it was even for Nicodemus, though he was a man. Uh, But again, he was in his day, not ours. Uh, They had no idea of mm, germ theory, right? Of epidurals, of the EMS, you know, uh, vehicle that can transport you to the hospital if something goes wrong at home or in the vehicle or whatever. See, every day, in that day, every woman who gave birth put their life on the line, every birth, was a bloody risk. What's Jesus saying to Nicodemus? Oh, he's saying that new life can only come to you through the pain, the suffering, maybe even the death of someone else. And in case you think I'm going too far, look ahead at John 16. Jesus is telling his disciples, he said, listen, I'm going to go away in a little while. You'll see me no more. But he says, a woman, look at this, giving birth, there it is, to a child has pain because her, what's the word, hour has come, her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that a child is born into the world. Now he uses the word hour here. Jesus is talking about his death. You may know in the gospel of John, the term hour is a technical term Jesus always uses to describe his death. He's either saying something like my, my hour is not yet here or my hour is upon us, but he's always connecting his hour to his death. And here he's connecting his hour, his moment of death to the experience of a mother giving birth. In other words, Jesus is, he's got the audacity to say like a mother I'm going to die to give my children life. 
Oh, but nothing he's saying could give me greater joy. The word he uses, joy, to do it for the joy set before me. Jesus says, I'm going to endure this shame. He's saying, for the joy of seeing new life coming to you. He's saying, Nicodemus, I'm going to become poison on a pole. Can you see every other system makes you labor? Only Christianity says, Jesus labored for you. He labored as you. What did he experience on the cross? He was cut out of the family of God. He cried out, God, where are you? He looked for the heart of God, the family of God. And he said, why am I forsaken? He longed for the only thing that could satisfy, but he got nothing. So that through his loving labor on the cross, we Nicodemuses could be born again. For God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son of the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You say, well, what does that look like? I think it looks a lot like Nicodemus. Because while here in John 3, he doubts Jesus, he's skeptical. Later on, we see him exploring the claims of Jesus. But by the time we get to the end of the book of John, we see something amazing has happened. At Jesus' crucifixion, when all his followers, except John and some women, deserted him and abandoned him, Nicodemus didn't. Nicodemus didn't. When it came time for Jesus' body to be removed from the cross, do you know who asked to do it and to care for it? It was two men, Joseph of Arimathea and the Pharisee. Nicodemus, they took his body down, they cleansed it, prepared it for burial. This was unheard of. Handling dead bodies in that day was considered woman's work. It made him unclean as a Pharisee to go into the temple, but Nicodemus does it. He handles the bloodied body of Jesus in front of all his friends, in front of all his peers. He is risking a lifetime of reputation, of his standing in public, And he comes out and is publicly identified as someone who loves and cares for, believes in the cross of Jesus. It was scary. It is scary to follow Jesus today. And but if you're coming, you're saying, well, Morgan, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. But what about this? What about that? Let me tell you, if that's you, it's not for you. It's not for you. If you're asking that, you're still stuck. Like Nicodemus was stuck. Like I was stuck for many years in my past. I was so good at being good. Oh, I was good at being good. As far as people could see. Memorize whole passages of the Bible like Nicodemus. Recite the lists. But I thought it was about trying hard. But hear me. I didn't know it was about being new. About being new. You couldn't have convinced me. I wasn't a Christian. I was trying so hard. I thought I only needed a teacher. I didn't know I needed a savior, a king, right, a Lord. I said, Jesus, make me new. In that moment, I repented. He changed me. He became new. He's still revealing himself to me. Sin began to lose its power over me. Jesus became real. And I want to tell you today, that can be your story today in this moment. Because of the loving labor of Jesus, you can receive what's been called the great privilege of the children of God to be free from sin, to come out of that and become a child of God. It can be true for you today.